John DeWars, how the fuck are you? Well, I'm really good, all things considered, Glenn Starchman. And, right. you know, I mean, obviously we're living in the zombie apocalypse, but, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but that, you know, that, other than that, everything's just grand. And actually the zombie apocalypse is treating me reasonably well also because, you know, um, staying, staying at home is just fine. Yeah, no, I, I, I love it. I love it. Um, and it's, it's funny because, um, I've been trying to avoid the, the apocalypse slash, I'm just going to say it COVID word, um, because YouTube apparently hates that a lot. So every time I mention the word COVID they're like, well, we can't advertise your video. I'm like, well, of, of course, everybody's talking about COVID, right? I mean, it's, it, it basically invades every, every part of your life. Why would that go against community standards? They call it a sensitive topic. Okay. Yeah. So I actually had a video that literally the word was mentioned one time, and it was with a restaurant owner here in Seattle. Um, And all we said, or all he said was, yeah, COVID has hurt my business. That was it. YouTube was like, no, I'm sorry. we, We can't promote your video. Bizarre. Bizarre. Yeah, so we, we live we, in a different world. I mean, it's it's kind of uh, it's kind of fun because I uh, it's causing me to think about what traditions are we going to keep after COVID. Uh, for instance, mm-hmm. my law firm is going to convert to almost one hundred percent telecommuting even after COVID because wow. the lawyers at my firm really enjoy it and and you know you don't go to bars as much and of course you and i at various times in our life have used bars as <laughs> right. living. a few times uh, yeah and Every once in a while. Uh, you know and now i uh, i get i have the impression that uh, we're going to be selective about which bars we want to go to yeah without uh, a doubt because without. Really, you know you've gotten used to not going to lots of them yeah yeah. Well, a lot of them aren't going to be around in, you know, a couple of months. So, um, I, I you know, I, I don't want really to go too deep down this rabbit hole because we could probably spend an hour just talking about it. But I have, you know, a, a fair amount of friends. I would say, you know, half a dozen who own bars and restaurants that are questionable as to whether they're going to reopen. Which brings me to the question, do you know anything about the bar where you and I met originally? Do you know if that's going to survive that old? I think they will. Ground? I mean, body is a, he's a fighter, if nothing else, you know, um, about a decade ago, he was offered, I want to say it was like 1.25 million just for the rights to his name. And that was, I think it was Starbucks and don't quote me on the numbers, but it was something like that. Um, and cause Starbucks wanted it and they ended up moving down the street instead. Right. Um, he turned it down because he was like, this is my legacy. That's so, the name of the bar. Yeah. That was just for the business. Right. <clears throat> yeah. We should tell people that was that we, we, we met at, uh, at flowers bar and right. restaurant in the university district of the great old uh, university way mm-hmm. uh, where I bartended uh, for seven years yep. as I was going through law school 
uh, and uh, even kept that job for a year after I started as a practicing attorney. And you were, of course, my beloved uh, regular. Oh, well, actually, that's not true. We kind of didn't like each other at first. Remember, like there was there was kind of a, a weirdness there. You were the new guy. I was the old crusty regular. So it's there was not. I liked you. I didn't know you didn't like me. But, <laughs> no, I didn't say I didn't like but you. I, there but was I that, that, that tension. <laughs> uh, I was I was probably encroaching on on your territory by being the new guy. Oh yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. And you know, you got to remember by the time you started at Flowers, his turnover rate was like you know, <clears throat> one every six years, right? So yeah, it was the same bartenders over and over again. Um. So yeah, that that obviously changed. But anyway, as far as I know, Fadi is still fighting, and and I would I would love to go in and and uh, check out flowers as soon as things kind of reopen, you know, just because. Um, sure, I, for for the sake of the audience, that 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 owner is named is a wonderful Lebanese guy named Fadi Hamadi. Yep, he's he awesome. That bar. <laughs> uh, all the time, except when he would go back to Lebanon for a month to visit his family, in which case his nephew, Adi Hamadi. That's right. I forgot about Adi. So here, here's actually a funny story. So when when I lived in Manhattan, um, I lived, unbeknownst to me, I lived right around the corner from his family's place. I swear to God, I know this story. Isn't yeah, this, it's a, it's isn't a fun, it, right? His brother had virtually the same exactly. uh, Lebanese Metza buffet concept set up but did yep. it better yep they had a, a tamra you remember tamra the armenian sure. princess um they had a, a what's her name a jinn like the the Icelandic princess they uh -huh. had i mean you name it like the exact replicas just in manhattan yeah it was it was amazing so and that's what what um adi is that his name sure yeah yeah adi so that's the one that that adi ran and it was, I mean, like a mirror replica. So I could only go in there a few times because it was really, really, really weird for me to go in there. <laughs> right? I was like, this is, you know, might as well be back home. And it was yeah. the same thing. Because when I first started going into Flowers, I was right around the corner from Flowers. Like almost the same distance. Right? Whereas this other place in Manhattan was exactly the same distance. Pretty much the same people. Um, you know, same atmosphere, without a doubt. Well, they say you can't go home again, but apparently you can drink there. Apparently, yeah, yeah. Um, like I said, I only went there three or four times because I started to feel really weird. You know, because then I'd, I'd come back to Seattle and I'd go to Flowers and be like, wait a second. You know, like I was, I was just here. <laughs> right, but 3,000 miles away. This is all Crazy. 20 years ago. You and I were kids then. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, now, we're, now, now we're grown up. Hey, I did I did my very first wedding party. That had been 97. Um, at Flowers. Well, actually, I'm sorry. He had just opened Rubies. And he, he wouldn't rent Flowers for under like 10K a night. And so he rented me Ruby for, I think, like three grand. And I was like... Dude, you and I both know that Ruby doesn't make anywhere close to three grand in a day. He's like, yeah. Okay, I'll give you 2000 <laughs> He like tip, tip, tip well body. And I was like, 
I'll tell you what, we'll make it 2200 and it'll take your bartenders really well. Right, which is exactly what happened. Nicely done. Yeah. And what what's funny is he showed up with, with his wife and, and I think he only had I think he only had the, the one kid at the time. Um and they came in and had a great time. Um and the basically the kid ate half of the buffet. Right. <laughs> I was like, wait, wait, I paid for that. But Dick Will Foddy was like no, no, no! You said you said we could come as guests. That's <laughs> okay. Like I don't care. You know, it's just fun. Um, but yeah, not too much further into this. But like Ruby was was again like a a mirror image of of flowers, right? Like he'd hire kind of the same people. Like if he had a a you know short female bartender with blonde hair that worked at at flowers on a Friday have the same thing but on the sunday at ruby i think it was just it, it's it's obviously like a um, like a template that he that has. family of restaurateurs apparently has a style that's genetically imprinted upon them absolutely yeah there's no doubt no doubt um anyway i love Fadi. i haven't seen him for for a while i saw him maybe in uh um March, june or july um right after the first time everything kind of reopened um and you know he still remembers me he's like oh yeah, yeah you know you've been coming in for 30 years you know like that that seat your seat i'm gonna put a plaque right he's been saying that for you know 10 years now um 30 years boy well give or take hold on no no, no not quite 26 years or 20 what whatever it is man it's a long time but anyway all right so now we're all grown up i'm practicing law yeah you're right, so that's what I want to get into. So, you you went to to law school at UW, right? Went to undergraduate at UW. Went to law school at Seattle University. Oh, that's right. That's right. I'm sorry. You're right. Oh, of course you're right. But I, uh, yep, yeah. uh, I uh, uh, tried working as an actor uh, during uh, high school and college and did a, a bunch of really terrible television commercials, including a Jolly Green Giant vegetable commercial. <laughs> eventually well, we have to come back to that, of course. Paid for, paid for tuition for all of college and most of law school and, uh, and tried to figure out, uh, you know, given that I'm never gonna be able to work as a professional actor because that's so competitive and I'm balding and I'm not that good looking, uh, oh, how am I going to stay? How am I going to stay close to the arts? And uh, intellectual property uh, seemed to be my best bet mm -hmm. as a way to do my law job and stay close to the arts. My father had done the same thing. Mm -hmm. He uh, did his uh, undergraduate degree in painting, his master's in fine arts in filmmaking at UCLA, and went back uh, uh, to law school and now is essentially an arts lawyer in Los Angeles and still goes back and teaches uh, the uh, MFA filmmaking students on legal issues uh, pertaining to their tradecraft. Wow. So it's funny, I, I kind of did the same thing, right? I mean, obviously different field, but um, I kind of got into I was, you know, did theater a lot and I did, you know, a lot of writing and, and 
God help me, I actually self-published and also had other people publish a few things, and they're cringeworthy as fuck. But I realized that the only way to actually do this and make money is to jump into something else. And so the reason I got into like development and all of that was because of that. Right. Cause I was like, I, I can actually make money and still create a platform um, that I can promote the arts on. And that was the original idea. Right. So it's, it's interesting to me to, to hear you kind of say the same thing. Like you were doing, you know, the acting thing and, and, but you saw something else in that and realized obviously that that's a, you know, a, a more lucrative career path. Um, I love that. You know, there are so many lawyers that are closet artists. I mean, you know, Dickens, Edgar Lee masters, tons and tons of judges who are former or currently aspiring novelists and poets. Uh, you know, it's it's a, it's a literary tradition. The profession is a literary tradition, and I think uh, I think it's a route that a lot of people go uh, when when they they are lovers of uh, artistic expression, but also have to feed family. Yeah, well, it's it makes sense, you know, especially the literary side, right? So you're talking about a profession where. Um, and this this might be a bit apocryphal, but you know where where a the positioning of a comma can actually change the entire meaning of of a contract, right? Um, so you have to have a, a a solid grasp on you know language and and even more important how how language is interpreted, right? I, I yes, and I think you know I, I think that's that's so important for this discussion because uh, in as much as it may be alienating to, you know, the musicians and other artists that may be interested in this program, uh, I can't encourage people enough to um, take the time and read their contracts right. as opposed to simply rubber stamping them, assuming that a competent lawyer has approved it for them or assuming that the, production label or distributor that they're doing business with is um, giving them a fair deal. Uh, right. Taking the time to read it is huge. Yeah. I I mean, I'm not going to bore you with it, but the, there are so many examples I have of, of even like friends of mine um, who have contracts that are 20, in some cases, 30 years old um, that weren't for very much money, you know, 20, 30, maybe 50K. Um, and they still owe, well, now they owe, you know, like 70 K right in a contract from, from based on like, based on like a negative pickup agreement. Exactly. Where the musician receives an advance in anticipation of future profits. Exactly. But realizes that they're doing sort of a deal with the devil. Right. But I think, you know, if you're a young kid and, you know, your dream is to be on a major label and, and you want to you know, tour and, and all that stuff. Like, I mean, at least back then, things have changed, obviously. But, you know, back then, in, you know, 20, 30 years ago, your only option was to sign with one of those, quote, major labels and just kind of hope. You know, not to mention 30 or 40 grand 20 or 30 years ago was a big chunk of money. Sure. 
Mm -hmm. um, and these are these are such great jumping off points in my opinion because mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that I think that if I if I had two things I was going to impart to a um, uh, to an aspiring young artist, you know, musician or otherwise, uh, I think it would be um, number one, love your admin, which I'll explain. Mm -hmm. And number okay. two, number two, do you want it done fast or do you want it done right? And mm -hmm. uh, and I guess on that latter point, just as you said, you know. Uh, a young musician now it might be their dream to sign with a label and so they will rush to get that done but in reality of course we got to remember why would anybody be in a rush to get a bad deal True. why would you want to hurry to sign a bad contract yeah no that's absolutely true um I, and i think you know pride basically comes into that right or not pride pride's not the right word um uh, uh what's the right word uh, uh gumption uh, i guess is, is the closest i can come up with right people are are we're obsessed with fame in the united states and fame has a definite cost associated with it and i think it's really hard for an artist to understand that right yeah like you don't you don't just get famous somebody usually i mean and again i'm being hesitant because things have changed in the last you know decade um but generally you don't get famous just by moxie alone right it takes somebody with with you know fairly deep pockets to you know like you know push that all that through well or it used to right and that's what you're talking about with the changes of the last decade or so right you know i think that <clears throat> i'm not sure that i would have described it as fame i think i might have described it as um as a hunger for a musician to get to practice her or his tradecraft Mm -hmm. um, because you know, 30 years ago, or you know, and, and even earlier, um, you really you had to ask somebody's permission to be allowed to practice your trade craft, unless you wanted to just busk on the street. You had mm -hmm. to get a distributor or a production label or an agency and get them to like you and get essentially their approval for you to practice your trade craft. And now that we have a much more diversified selection of media distribution channels thanks to the internet mm -hmm. we don't have to ask permission as much people are producing their own albums they're finding their own way to distribute their art right. and it's really democratized um and i think that that's great because it um changes the power dynamic because mm -hmm. artists can read their contracts and take the time to say you know, I'd like to push back on these couple of sections, uh, these couple of rights, these couple of provisions um, without uh, an 800 pound gorilla that is the distribution label saying, well, I'm sorry, you can't push back. You know, you make this deal with the devil or, or you don't get a deal and you don't get to do your art. So it, it's funny you mentioned that because one of, one of the notes I took was talking about the DMCA. Right. Sure. And this is I think Millennium Copyright Act. Correct. Yeah. So I, I think on its face, the DMCA has a lot to offer. Um, the problems that I've seen are, um, again, they're fairly anecdotal, 
but they're widespread enough that that uh, I might push them slightly outside of anecdotal and more into just you know reality. Um, I've had a number of of friends and and myself involved um, who have had DMCA takedown notices taken on YouTube um, for using your own material. Right. So it 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 goes in this weird state. So. Um, there's a famous example that happened about a month ago. Um, a, a fairly f famous um, heavy metal guitarist went on a podcast and he played a solo, not a full song, just a solo on the podcast. Um, and he never claimed it was, you know, this song from this album or, or whatever. Um, but the, the, the YouTube algorithms basically picked that up as being a song that that is protected you know that somebody had, had signed up you know some some rights organization had signed up and said hey this is our song um and he played 35 seconds so just over the the uh the 30 seconds um non-official but but basically accepted by everyone limit of how much you can you can play a song right before it becomes bad um and that entire video was taken down because of that. And the story basically goes that he went back and he fought it because he said, Hey, not only is it a song from my band song that I personally own the publishing rights to. And YouTube basically said, fuck you. I said, well, that, you know, as far as we're concerned, we have one customer and that's the label. And the label has said, this is something that we own. So sure. it, it can get really, really murky at that point. <laughs> well, yeah, and this is and this is valuable to talk about. We should take a step back and talk about the uh, sort of vocabulary terms at play here. Uh, we have this notion of a copyright. Uh, the copyright um, should be equated with title ownership. Just like you own a title to your house, you... Mm -hmm. Somebody uh, can and generally does own title uh, to the copyright for a song. Mm -hmm. and the person that built the house might not be the person that holds title to the house, and the person that built the song might not be the person that owns title to it. Very frequently, sure. Part of these agreements, title to the copyright ownership of the song is passed to a production label or a distribution label um, that thereby acquires the right to tell YouTube uh, to take it down. And when they are telling YouTube to take it down, of course, what they're doing is invoking the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Right. This is a, uh, a an addition to the original Copyright Act that says, um, normally it would be copyright infringement for anybody to perform Form a song or any other work of copyrighted art that somebody mm -hmm. else owns the title to. Um, but then websites, hosts of digital media, Facebook, YouTube, other kinds of websites, obviously became very concerned and had to lobby because they would say, uh, because as they told Congress through various lobbying groups, um, uh, People who enjoy media on our website often put copyrighted art on it, and we can't track all of it. 
And so we need amnesty for that. We need a safe harbor. And that safe harbor is mm -hmm. what the Digital Millennium Copyright Act is. It's a piece of legislation added to the Copyright Act that says uh, a, the holder of title to a copyrighted work can send YouTube or Facebook or another media provider uh, a notice that says, hey, you've got my copyrighted work on your site, please take it down. As long as they do take it down, they're not liable for infringements. Okay, so go, going back to your example, because I found that fascinating, right? So it's like, you know, the, the, the analogy to like the title of the house versus who owns the house and whatnot. I, I totally get that. Um, but all I could hear was you were saying that is what is the difference between an artist doing a reproduction of an act or, or of a song, for example? Um, what is the difference between that and somebody taking a picture of a house that somebody else owns? <laughs> the difference may not be a difference because certain architectural designs can be subject to copyright ownership. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, um, a, a Frank Lloyd Wright house design could theoretically be copyrighted. Mm -hmm. And taking a photo of it might indeed infringe the copyright on that design. So let, let's stop right there just for a second. Because that's really interesting to me. Is is there any case law that, that you're aware of where something like that, because it sounds absurd, but I, I do understand how it could happen. Um, so let's say, for example um let's say you bought a house that was a you know frank lloyd wright house right so you live in it you bought it the title is in your name it's paid for and i come along and i stand in your front yard um in a public area right so i'm not infringing on you directly and i take a picture of your house and i publish that somewhere a magazine article whatever um do you are you aware of any cases where myself the person who took the picture is charged charge is not the right word but i think you know what i mean with copyright infringement yes um the person who would have standing to sue for that copyright infringement would be the architect not the homeowner right architect is the person that designed it and we refer to these as mask works and there are some instances in the architectural setting where the right to copyright or mask works has been asserted <clears throat> the most common form though in history it's not recent was actually um, designs for boat holes the fronts of boats mm -hmm. um, would often be copyrighted. And if other boat designers tried to de uh, design their boats the same way, <clears throat> they would get sued over misappropriation of that mask work. Mm -hmm. So there is precedent for that. Um, Interesting. <clears throat> but, Anything uh, recent? I mean, no, what people do you, don't do it anymore. 
Okay. So if see, I, I think this is actually really important um, on a on a macro scale, right? Um, because where I'm going with that is if I take a work and I modify it to a different medium, right? And and I don't want to get into all of that because I, I did, you know, music licensing and whatnot. And I know it, it, it's, it's a very murky subject, but on, on a macro level, um, if I were to take that image of a house and I were to, I don't know, create a, a painting of that house, right? If I were to, um, and then say slightly modify the painting so it doesn't look exactly like, you know, the, the house that, you know, Frank Word Light, uh, I'm sorry, you know what I'm talking about, um, that, that he had created. I mean, what does that look like from a legal standpoint? Well, what you're talking about is the fair use doctrine. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> the fair use doctrine says it's not copyright infringement if what you're actually doing is engaging in some kind of social commentary on okay. an existing copyrighted work. Okay. I want to stop you right there, Dewars. Because I want to hear everything you have to say, but I, I want to hear this. So um, if I take a sample of your work, right? So musically, I take a sample of your work and I incorporate it into a larger work um, that has a commentary. I mean, like, isn't that a social commentary? So if, if I were to take, say, like 15 seconds of a song you created and I you know, sample that and let's say it's only once, just, just make it easy, right? So I just take 15 seconds, I sample it in the, in the middle. Um, and maybe I talk about your song, maybe I make fun of it, maybe I, you know, talk about like the characters in it, whatever. Um, to me, that should fall under the, the fair use guidelines. But it, Sometimes it doesn't. You, you, you don't think that. I'll tell you that right now. You don't think that. <clears throat> if you're informed, you don't think that. And the reason mm -hmm. you don't think that is because you can't just say that wholesale. You can't just say that as a blanket statement. Okay. Because there are factors to be examined. You might be right. There's a four-factor test for fair use. And I don't have all the factors in front of me, so I'm going off memory to a degree. Mm -hmm. um, That's fine. The factor one is the strength of the copyright. That's a boring factor. I'm, I'm not going to uh, talk about that. Mm -hmm. um, the quantity and quality of the amount sampled. Right. Right. Uh, so uh, did you borrow a minor piece of the other song or did right. you borrow a major piece of the other song? Right, which is, of course, subjective. Subjective. And so this is a factually specific inquiry. That's why you can't make it right. as a blanket statement. Right. It's a factually specific inquiry. Um, mm -hmm. The other factors, actually, I do remember them, are the um, quality of the accused infringing use. Is it social commentary of some kind? One mm -hmm. great example is uh, parody. Weirdo Yankovic, 
right? Which is oh, yeah. kind of where I was going. Um, <clears throat> and then the fourth factor is to what extent does your alleged fair use take away the ability of the um, uh, of the original copyright holder to economically enjoy the benefits of their work, right? So what I'm saying to you, Glenn Starchman, is I don't think you would actually say um, it's okay to sample mm -hmm. uh, as a blanket statement. I think you would say it's okay to sample after looking at these subjective factors on a <clears throat> on a factually specific basis. How okay. much? How much are you stealing? Think. Um, think Queen. Wait, wait, wait. Line. Hold on. You just said the word stealing, so I, I want to back into that just a little bit. Um. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not disagreeing with what you said at all. Um, there's a very fine line to me here because I, I am very, very pro-intellectual property rights, like very, very much. Um, but because without them, because without them, artists don't get to be rewarded for their innovation. Absolutely. But again, you just said, and, and I, I know you and I, I know what you were actually getting at, but I just want to point this out. You use the word stealing when you were talking about using somebody else's property. Sure. And generally you're right. Like, I mean, in, in the physical world, I can't come over to your house and say, hey, Dwarves, I'm just going to use your, you know, your dishwasher or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, I can't do that. Because I would be breaking and entering, and, and we have we have actual physical laws about me doing that stuff. Sure. But if I were to, for example, take what you said on this podcast and use it some other way, there's, at least to me, there seems like there should be a, a different um, set of rules that apply to that. Because I'm not, I'm not physically invading your space right or am i completely off on that i actually think i actually think it's it's more true to say it's the same set of rules or almost the same set of rules mm -hmm. but they're applied differently to recognize um, the nature of the particular property that you are talking about as having been potentially trespassed upon. Um, so, uh, you know, in this setting, for instance, um, theoretically, I could have a right of publicity uh, you can take what I say because what I what I have said is not copyrighted. Um, it's newsworthy. This uh, production that you're doing is is a newsworthy production. Uh, so just like you're a journalist and I'm a public figure, uh, which I'm not, but if I were, <laughs> what I say is newsworthy and it is fair use. Right. Uh, if you were using my image to promote uh, a, a product or service. Uh, then I might be able to complain that you don't have a waiver of rights from me for rights of publicity. Okay. Uh, so yeah. let's back up here just one second. Let's say, which you didn't, but well, let's just say, let's say that that you and I were talking 
and you said something that was a, a, a you know a slip of some kind right so let's say you said something and i'm not going to say anything specific because i i don't i don't want to live this i just want to talk about it sure let's say you said something that was legally questionable while we were talking okay and i then turned that around and i said hey i've got a a you know product or service or whatever that i can benefit from this misstatement that john dewars did on my podcast and i used that and i said well but he said it right like i i have you know documentation like he he literally said this um and i use that to better myself in some way financially probably um is that fair use or is that not it depends on the nature of your use this is the questions that you're asking are so important I'm not sure that this topic is as useful to musicians unless we drill down a little bit onto how it applies to music. But the the topic that you are, the questions that you're asking are so important because what your questions highlight is that in intellectual property, there are a couple of different countervailing policies or interests or frames of reference. Okay. One is the right of ownership and this is very much an economic policy mm -hmm. and the people that favor um what i would call protectionist regimes in other words mm -hmm. let's favor exclusive ownership <clears throat> they are wanting to um, promote an economic policy that says we give people exclusive ownership in order that they can benefit from their intellectual property from the stuff that they create because if they know they can benefit from it, whether they're scientists, whether they're academics, whether they're artists, um, whether they're celebrities, um, if we if they know they can uh, profit from what they what they do in, in terms of innovation, then they will innovate. And as a result, in America, we're going to have lots of innovation, and it will further our leadership within the world. On the other side. Um, the other sort of countervailing frame of reference is um, the First Amendment. It's really protected speech. Sure. And that's what fair use is about. So um, it's a balancing act. Um, and I think that that's what the fair use factors tend to focus on. You're asking me, what if I say something dumb in this um, interview, which I probably already have? Yeah. Um, Not yet. And you, hopefully you do. And you use it in some other media. Mm -hmm. um, if I were to complain about that in some way, mm -hmm. um, in a holistic sense, the court would engage in an analysis that focused on that balancing act. Is Glenn using my dumb uh, gaffe um, to comment in a socially productive way, whether you agree with it or not? that furthers First Amendment protected interests because we like free speech in this country? Or is he just taking away my ability to economically benefit from my own right of publicity, my own image, my own likeness? And I think the question is answered, you know, uh, 
by that factually specific inquiry we're talking about, are you using my gaffe to, um, to talk about something interesting that's the subject of public concern? Or are you putting me on a bag of Cheetos? Just like, okay. just like they took Tom Waits' distinctive voice and put it behind <laughs> the image of Chester the Cheetah promoting Cheetos, which is why Tom Waits sued and won. Did you watch that interview, by the way? With Tom Waits? No, no, no. I had uh, uh, last Thursday, I had uh, Tom Waits' guitarist on. Oh, no, I didn't watch that interview. Okay, so we'll talk about that after the fact. But yeah, I have I have some interesting um, insight in Tom Waits on that one. Um, good, my dear, like nothing bad. Um, so what you're basically saying is um, and again, I'm not quoting you as a matter of law, just, you know, opinion, just so everyone hears that. Um, if basically what you're saying is my speech, especially if I include your speech as part of my speech, is may or may not be protected depending on factors, right? So... I, I can, you know, in theory, right? And again, not legal advice at all. If if I were to take something you said and you said, buy silver, right? Which is, you know, the, the big fucking topic on Reddit. Um, and I were to use you saying that, even if you were saying it like sarcastically, right? You're like, oh, no, don't buy silver. Like, that's horrible. But I could edit that in such a way that you said buy silver. And I promoted that. Um, that would more than likely fall outside of of protections. Absolutely true. And okay. uh, and uh, the overriding principle there is that um, commercial speech is afforded less protection under the First Amendment than non-commercial speech. Okay. Uh, is that codified anywhere? Is that just how it is? Uh, it is not codified, if you mean by codified, that it is included as expressed language in a code right? provision I mean. by their statutes or um, administrative rules in, mm -hmm. uh, in federal United States jurisprudence. It is engendered within um, uh, case law and extensive jurisprudence. It's always uh, the case that commercial speech is afforded lesser protection uh, than uh, other kinds of speech. Um, but you know, as we talk about this topic, um, let me give you the example that I and lots of other practitioners um, like to look to. Um, <clears throat> think Andy Warhol mm -hmm. and the Campbell Tomatoes. soup. Yeah, exactly. Now the, the tomato soup can is both trademarked and copyrighted. Andy Warhol painted it. He didn't change it. He didn't modify it. You asked the question earlier, what if you take a picture of my house, which the architect may have copyrighted the design on, and then you turn it into a painting? Well, in that painting, and this is one of the factors looked at in fair use analysis, in your painting, you very likely have done something somewhat transformative. You've changed it. And that constitutes social commentary. 
the the change that you make to it is okay. part of the social commentary that is one of those factors of fair use. Mm -hmm. um, Andy Warhol really just almost literally replicated the Campbell soup can. He said it was a social commentary on consumerism in America, but was it really, or was he really just, um, uh, just capitalizing on uh, an image that he observed to be emotionally evocative in the, con in the uh, context of Americana? And, uh, you know, most practitioners, most intellectual, intellectual property practitioners that I know would say it would have been copyright infringement if it wasn't Andy Warhol. But because it was Andy Warhol, nobody cared. Um, so to me, that's something really interesting and, and something I kind of want to dive into for, for some of the other people who are watching, right? If, if I'm not a Wendy Andy Warhol if I'm just some you know random person um and I'm creating actually I'm sorry divorce I have actually have a, a kind of a deep hole to go into um let's go there if if love you yeah, brother let's do let's it. Go there. if if I'm and I'll, I'll use this term a random musician Right. I'm a random band. I'm, I'm like, whatever. And I'm out there. And I'm like, hey, I'm going to create this song that I fucking love. Right. Like something I came up with. Um, sorry. And I write the song, even though I know it, it has a, a sound or a, a, a feeling or, or, you know, whatever that's similar to some other song. Right. Um, what should I do at that point? So I know it's, it's a huge question. Um, well, yeah, and it's a huge question. And actually, I'm so glad you asked this question. The, what should I do? What I do not want to do on this interview with you is something that lawyers do that I hate. So many lawyers on their websites raise questions like this. And then the answer is, call us and hire us it's right. it's a marketing technique yeah. i would actually rather provide um well okay first of all something useful right so first of all i'm gonna promote you just because you know because but i i think what you just said is is um first of all super noble second of all um advice that i think most people who are dealing with with like intellectual property issues should should you know be aware of right because there are a bunch of charlatans out there who will say you know hey you know a um uh, and i forget the numbers but last time i look i think like a, the filing fee for a patent was like 375 and whatever like you know depending on, on what sort of protection you want it goes up and down but you have lawyers who will come in and say, um, yeah, um, it's actually going to be like, you know, 10,000 or a hundred thousand or whatever. And of course, you know, depending on the size of, of what you want, it's going to go up and down. Um, and I think there's a, a fear amongst people who are in, in creative aspects to engage lawyers because 
traditionally, you know, being defended by a lawyer is expensive. And this circles back to, <clears throat> this circles back to um, what I said earlier uh, about the two things that I would like people to take away from this interview. One is, you know, don't rush to a bad contract, but the other is love your admin. There is so much value to getting online and learning about the issues involved in your profession as an artist, because it is a profession mm -hmm. um, that impact you. Um, and some of it is not rocket science. Filing a copyright application is not rocket science. You have to do a little reading online. There's no reason for you to pay me to file a copyright application for protection of a song. Right. Additionally, um, uh, you know, the artist uh, in question, you or somebody else, can look through the fair use factors. Guess what? They're online. And you can read these factors and generally speaking, use your own judgment. Mm -hmm. um, when we read about the fair use cases, and I'm trying to answer your question as best as I can. No, no, no. So I, what, do, what do I do? Um, when we go to law school, we read about the tough cases where it's a close question. Right. That's why we read about them in law school, because it's a way to analyze the factors. So like a, a, a close question, uh, just as an example on the fair use uh, issue would be when uh, Roy Orbison sued Two Life Crew. Right. Because they created a song called Oh Harry Woman. Right. Um, uh, uh, modeled after Oh Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison. Mm -hmm. And Two Life Crew said it's fair use because it's social commentary. The lyrics were like, oh, hairy woman, you've got to shave that thing. <laughs> the lawyers from the life crew argued successfully, um, you know, again, looking at these fair use factors, argued successfully that it was social commentary because they were talking about uh, the objectification of women in American <laughs> media. And uh, Roy Orbison's counsel argued unsuccessfully on that factor that we talk about where whether or not two life crew was displacing Roy Orbison's ability to economically benefit from his own copyright work. Um, uh, they said, well, uh, uh, what if Roy Orbison wanted to come up with a parody of his own song because two life crew said it was a parody and the right. judge ruled, no, you can't parody yourself. So when someone else parodies you, wow. it's not a displacement of your economic benefit from your work. Fascinating. That is fascinating. But these are the close questions. Generally speaking, most questions are not going to be close. So what do you do? My response to you, Glenn, what do you do? And what should the artists watching this program do? Mm -hmm. Get on the web, read the articles online about it just through Google um, mm -hmm. and use your best judgment because most questions are not going to be close questions. And when you're early in your artistic career, your dollars are valuable. You want to conserve oh, yeah. them, not give them to lawyers like me. There's right. so much information available right now that um, you should feel empowered. 
love your admin and feel confident to understand um, these principles that impact your artistic professional practice. Um, you can learn accounting principles mm -hmm. just based on what's available on the internet. And you should not feel alienated by them just because you're an artist and you want to say to yourself, I'm an artist, so I can't understand accounting. You right. want to get familiar with the fact that um, there are four different ways uh, to make music traditionally in the music industry. They are the publishing royalties, uh, which are the ephemeral rights, mm -hmm. the um, touring uh, fees, the merchandising rights, and the album sales. And you want to understand those concepts instead of just relying on a lawyer uh, or an agent to counsel you on them. Uh, you, right. you know, love your admin, get educated, get empowered. Right. Um, I, have, I have two comments on that. One, <coughs> one is, um, I think traditionally an artist is not going to trust a lawyer, um, at least early in their career, right? Like people who are just coming in are just not going to trust that. And the reason they're not going to trust that is part of my second part of the question is that um, and we don't have to go deep into this at all, just maybe a couple of seconds, but um, traditionally record labels um, and, and movie studios, like those are the two big ones, their creative accounting makes it really hard. So when you say understand accounting, um, yeah, that, that, that takes you part of the way, but there's so much weird shit that happens in those contracts that as a, a especially a young artist you don't understand that every time you know uh here's an example um an a and r crew comes out from your record label comes out to see a show okay and you're like that's awesome my label's supporting me this is great um what ends up happening is all of the expenses for that, you know, coming out to see you in Minneapolis and you're from Seattle, for example, right? So all of the costs of that, you know, their dinner, their hotel, their flights and all that shit, um, depending on your contract, can come out of, you know, what you owe the label, right? So I I, I think your advice is awesome. It's spot on. Um but it's also very dependent on the label. Like if you deal with somebody or label or, or movies to you, whatever, um, it, it really depends on, on the, uh, um, the fortitude of that institution you're working with. Right. So I think your advice is rock solid. That's not what I'm, I'm talking but about. It also, it also, it, it also depends on the fortitude of you, the artist. Right. So obviously you're not going to get a lot of, you're not, you know, just to negotiate your music contract. No, you're not going to, you're not going to get an accounting degree. You're not going to become certified as a CPA. You're not going to become a forensic accountant, but you can learn enough to issue spot enough to ask the important questions. Okay. To recognize it. I mean, if you get cancer, you probably shouldn't just go to your oncologist and say, tell me what to do. Right. 
you should probably read some articles about cancer enough to equip you to ask important questions relating to your treatment, relating to your risks, relating yeah, to definitely. options. And any artist can get educated enough to do 85% of that, asking the tough questions like, like, hey, when we talk about net royalties, what are the costs that come out of net? Hey, when we talk about publishing rights, mm -hmm. if I'm the guitarist, but not the lead singer or songwriter, what percentage of revenues do I get to enjoy when my song is played on the radio, given that I didn't write the lyrics or the melody, but I sure wrote the bass riffs right. that made the song important. I mean, you can, you can learn enough to issue spot and ask the questions and that's part of loving your admin and taking the time to ask those questions is part of not rushing to a bad contract in my view. I, I think that's very valid, you know, um, and I think there, there's there's something slightly else at play too in that the majority of entertainment lawyers I, I know, like the, the higher end ones, right? Um, the amount they're charging is obscene. I mean, it's absolutely fucking obscene. And I don't want your commentary on that, right? So I'm not going to not ask you for it. Um, it's it's a specialty. And so this is the, the main reason I wanted to talk to you, Dwarves. So people who are not aware of, of the legal system um, many times don't feel like they have a choice. So... If they're an artist, for example, and I'm just going to use that, you know, from here on out, um, they're a musical artist, they're signing a contract, they're dealing with, you know, publishing rights, they're dealing with, you know, distribution, they're dealing with all of that. Um, and I think a lot of them feel trapped to find somebody who's known as, you know, a, um, you know, a music industry lawyer. Right. And in my experience, the majority of those people charge, well, a lot, you know, a super fucked lot, you know. Um, and I think what you just said is, is very valid, though, just simply having a, a general standpoint of or a general understanding of, you know, copyright accounting and all that sort of stuff takes you a, a long way. But also the labels tend to kind of pressure the artist into, into finding, um, how do I say this, a, a representation that, that is favorable to them, right? So what happens a lot of times is artists will, especially new artists, they'll sign a contract with a, a major um, the contract is questionable, even from somebody without a legal standpoint. Um, and again, as a young artist, your goal is to get your shit out there. And what the label will say, and I've actually sat in meetings where this was said, is, well, we suggest you get an attorney to look at this, right? Which seems like a, a nice thing to do, right? Hey, we're about to sign a contract with you. But we recommend you look at it, you know, you have a lawyer look at it. 
before you sign it. And so the artist is like, of course, you know, great. We'll look, we'll, you know, we'll grab a lawyer. We'll have them look at it, whatever. Um, and those lawyers tend to be, you know, super comp, you know, competent. The problem is within those contracts, generally the amount of money the, that artist spends to validate the contract comes out of their contract. Right. So again, I, I don't want to get super deep into this, but I've seen this happen over and over again, um, where legal representation for the artist becomes part of the contract, meaning that um, the amount of money, I'm sorry, the amount of the money the label is going to spend, um, they'll say, say $200,000. Okay that negotiation that happens um can be part of that whereas so if, if i called not you uh, uh you know john smith right and i say hey john smith is is a you know an entertainment lawyer and i'm going to have him you know do some work on this and the label will say okay that's great john smith is a great lawyer um and so I, as the artist, hire John Smith, and he comes in and he negotiates the contract and whatnot. And and I turn around to the label and I say, "Well, you said you were going to supply a lawyer to me," and they're like, "We did, and it cost a hundred thousand dollars. So, and we gave you two hundred thousand. So there's a hundred thousand that's taken out, right? So, I, I, everything you've said about about understanding." Um, you know, the basics of copyright law and whatnot, that all makes perfect sense to me. Um, but that only tends to work if, if you're on an even field with your adversary, as it were. And this, yes, and this goes back to the power dynamic that we were discussing earlier, uh, uh, especially as that has changed with the diversification of media distribution channels. Um, uh, and I think that that's taught us a lesson uh, as a society, and I think it's taught artists a lesson, um, which is that uh, they should um, and can um, be more confident in their negotiating uh, position. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because you talked about artists being pressured. Artists have been being pressured, you know, uh, forever. I mean, you know, artists have had benefactors who tell them what to paint. Uh, they've had mm -hmm. uh, movie production labels that tell them how to edit their scripts. They've had uh, 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 music distribution labels that tell them what commercials their song is going to be attached to. I mean, mm -hmm. artists are always pressured and, and, and I don't think that they should feel pressured because we're now at an age where you don't have to ask permission to do your trade craft and distribute it. There's lots of other ways uh, to get to practice your art. And so you, I don't mm -hmm. think you should feel pressured. And if you do, uh, it usually ends up being a bad deal for you. I mean, you ever hear about uh, TLC's gripes about how long it took for them to make any money? Right. Yeah. Uh, 
because even though they were wildly successful, they signed a bad contract. What was the value of that to them? They got to rush to a bad deal and have their music distributed, but they were broke for most of their uh, popularity. What's the value in that? Yeah, and and that happens a lot. I mean, a a hell of a lot. Um, And if you you are a lawyer, or sorry, if if you're an artist of any kind, including a musician, and you have professional advisors, be they lawyers, accountants, um, agents, managers, whoever they are, mm-hmm. have the confidence to recall that they are your servants. They are not your handlers. That's a great advice. So if if they're not your handlers, do you believe that, I mean, is the artist themselves their handler at that point? Like, I mean... Every person has to be their own handler. Okay. They have I mean, to. I think that's valid. Um, so if, if you had any advice for an artist, you know, that, that's making minimal, if anything, money, right? But they believe they're going to do something great, which is basically every fucking artist that's ever lived, right? Um, because if they didn't believe that, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. So... If you had any advice whatsoever for somebody like that who maybe they haven't signed a deal, you know, with a label or, or a you know production company or anything like that, and they just want to future proof what they're doing in like two sentences, what would be your advice to them? Two pieces of advice, two sentences. One, you're not just a musician. You're a, mm-hmm. you're an achiever and I like that. don't feel that you can only make music. You can also do lots of other things important to your profession, mm-hmm. including addressing the business issues, which may seem alienating at times, but that is a false emotional barrier. You can grasp these concepts of the admin that impacts your profession as an artist. You should feel confident uh, uh, about it. You're you're an achiever. You're not just a musician. Um, uh, And I think second would probably be uh, have the confidence to stand up for yourself. Yeah, no, I, I mean, well, that's just a life skill, right? As far as I'm concerned. Um, and a lot of people don't do it. And to be honest, I was into my 40s before I could really stand up for myself. You know? Sure. Um, so, Dwarves, let's start wrapping this up. I know you got to go. I've got to. Oh, yeah, I totally have to go. Um, it's you always know, good to see you, brother. Oh, likewise. And we're way over. Do I was just realizing we haven't seen ourselves and each other in person since 2017. So Holy it's cow. really about time. Yeah, yeah I was still going through my first, or sorry, the second divorce. It, it all gets wrapped up, dude. <laughs> but, you know, something like that. Um, You know, hey, I want to have you back on and I want to talk more in detail about, um, well, all the shit we skipped. 
which is, you know, maybe a little more minutiae, you know, as it comes to um, intellectual property, because hold on one last thing I'm going to do before we go. I've got a I got something like pulled up and it's you can't see this. So I'm just going to talk about it, but it's a, a website about intellectual property for um, musicians. Okay. And their title of intellectual property is intellectual property is a broad framework of rights in law that protects quote creations of the mind unquote. What do you think about that? It's false. Okay. Well, it, it didn't ring right with me either, which is why I, I kind of like, like save that aside. Um, it's false because intellectual property can only go so far. Mm -hmm. Intellectual property laws are driven by an economic policy. We want to promote innovation because it's good for society. It is not about you, Glenn Starchman, owning an idea. It's about society benefiting from the fact that you um, will be economically rewarded for owning an idea. Intellectual property specifically does not protect creations of the mind. It protects in the patent realm, mm -hmm inventions that are actually reduced to practice and right. then become the subject of patent applications so that after 20 years of exclusivity the scientific community can build on those inventions in the copyright setting it does not protect exclusive ownership of ideas it only protects the uh, visual expression of ideas so right. the Interesting. expression can be put out there in the trademark setting it only protects um, uh, brands that distinguish the source of a good or service so that society feels comfortable relying on that source identifier to rush into the marketplace and spend their dollars. Right. It specifically is not to protect creations of the mind. It is to, and if it was designed to protect creations of the mind, the countervailing theorists who are more in favor of the First Amendment would scream bloody murder. <laughs> right. No, uh, you're right. You're it's right. Only, it's only a set of laws that that creates a, a bundle of rights to the extent that doing so promotes sound economic policy. Dewars, I love that. And I think that's a great place to kind of end it. Um, but I want to have you back on because I want to dig a little bit deeper in some other stuff at some point um, i'd love to i i think i think what you just said is going to resonate with a lot of artists number one um and i think number two um if it doesn't resonate with them it will kind of expand their mind a little bit right and let them think about it right um there, there's a lot of of definitions of intellectual property that just aren't not real right like the one i just read you um and i know a lot of artists who are like oh i'll send myself a copy of the song in the mail and you know it, it's it's protected 
obviously we know that's not that is like that is like drinking bleach to cure covid right exactly exactly so um next time i have you on which hopefully very 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 soon we can talk about um possibly some some um cost effective i'm not going to say cheap cost effective ways of um you know protecting something that you think is going to be of value in the future i love that let's go let's go diy for ours yeah let's do oh, it man let's don't, do it. don't hire expensive lawyers like Dewars. go diy <laughs> well i mean DIY. obviously i want people to hire Dewars, but <laughs> you know hey we, we can uh um it's the funnel of what, what's it called trickle down economics <laughs> we can do that <laughs> we we know how the way that works right it works very well Dewars, i love you man love you man Take we'll care. talk to you in, in like a week or two or three weeks or whatever it is all right Seems great cheers man cheers man. all right